I derive a lot of strength from survivors themselves, the survivors that I talk to. When I see and hear and look at the kind of courage and fortitude and the tenacity they have and what they've gone through, that gives me a lot of hope and inspiration that if they can embrace that amidst all they've gone through, it just gives hope that uh, it's not all gloom. It's not all gloom. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, Janet. I heard you went behind my back and spoke to another woman with an asymmetrical haircut. I was in Kenya and yes, JJ Wangui has the most amazing haircut. It's all um, shaved up one side and looks great. Uh, we'll post some photos of it, but I thought she'd be a great person to speak to. And who is she? She's a journalist and I first came across her while she was reporting on the post-election violence in Kenya. The reason why that was interesting was because it came eventually to the ICC. It was a contested election in... 2007, 2008, about a thousand people uh, were killed in the violence uh, of protests after the election. Uh, half a million were displaced. It was a, a huge event. And there was an inquiry in Kenya and um, there was no justice that was being executed in Kenya. And a lot of question marks over who was responsible. And this was the first investigation that the prosecutor of the ICC started proprio moto of, of her own account, as she can, uh, because apparently, the, well, the Kenyan parliamentarians didn't, couldn't set up their own court or didn't want to. And eventually, after further elections, both the president and the deputy president ended up at the ICC, right? I'm sure you remember that big, um, enormous media circus that happened around that Um I thought JJ was really interesting to talk to because she didn't focus on that big set of political issues the whole time. She really dealt with the victims of what happened. She spoke to people on the ground. She heard their direct stories. Um, and she really focused on sexual and gender-based crimes that happened during that period. Not only women, she also spoke to men, which I think is very difficult to get men to speak about what's happened to them during violence like that. And she really managed to get people to trust her. So um, I hope people will be interested in how it is to be a journalist working in that area and uh, what she thought was important. Um, just a warning, though, that some of the things that she speaks about are a bit um, difficult to listen to because they're very graphic, the descriptions of what happened. But uh, what I'm interested in also is how you work as a journalist in this kind of field, because it's it's not easy. No, it's definitely not. Let's see what she has to say. I'm sitting here in Nairobi with... JJ Wangoi. And the reason why I wanted to talk to JJ, um, I've been following you for a while. Um, this is actually the first time we've met, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, is that... You have specialised uh, in this field of international justice. So I thought it'd be interesting to ask you some more questions about that and about how, you know, how justice is going here in Kenya. So why did you find yourself working in that specific sphere? To, you know, what, what, what made you work on, 
on that area on sexual and gender-based crimes? I can say uh, it was out of default. Um, I'm Kenyan and we experienced political violence, post-election violence in 2007-2008 where atrocities, human rights violations happened and happened to people just like myself. We were thrown into a turmoil, like we were in a confused state. We didn't know where this thing has come from. We didn't know where it was heading. We didn't know how it was going to pan out. So as a journalist, I was just writing about the mainstream violence at that time, the killings, the displacement of people, just the hate around the country, the ethnic conflict between people. And then um, I realized that as I got to talk to survivors and victims of the post-election violence, there's a category that came out and was saying, we have been sexually violated, we have been raped, but nobody's writing about us. Why was that? Why, why were other people not writing? Why were you the one who ended up writing those stories? There were other people actually who were writing, but there was not a standalone documentation on sexual and gender-based violence that happened. And so I cut out that niche because I needed to tell these stories. I needed to write what probably every other person was not writing about or was not seeing at that time because majority of Kenyans, and I'm talking of women and men, were sexually violated in the post-election violence. But then because of their crime seen as sort of, in quotes, less of a crime and not the mainstream crime, not the mainstream atrocity because of, of, of its nature, what do you mean? Do you mean that people um, would see either killings or um, displacement as mainstream and this is somehow lesser? Absolutely. Because first of all, somebody who was displaced from their home was able to say and show that I was living in that house and I was uprooted from that house. That was my land and I was uprooted. My arm was cut. You can see um, I'm an amputee. But somebody who had been raped or sexually violated, you know, first of all, the taboo around the subject, the shame and stigma around sexual and gender-based violence. It was not easy for this category of survivors to just come out and speak and say it has happened to us, considering that even if there were internally displaced persons, first of all, but then there were also survivors of sexual violence, it was hard. Plus also, this issue of believability, People knew and understood that, yes, it, it could have happened, but then they were dismissing their claims or just rubbing it, I mean, rubbing their claims out and saying, what we know is that people were displaced from their homes. What we know is that people were killed, Kenyans were killed, but because you did not report to the police, there are no medical evidence showing that you were raped, it became increasingly hard for survivors of sexual violence to state their claim and say it had happened to them until... Some organizations, including the official inquiry, uh, the official commission that was set up by the government that time called the Commission of Inquiry into the Post-Election Violence, started taking statements, witness statements, statements from survivors, including sexual violence survivors. And they were also relying on medical reports because there were those who were able to report their crimes to the police and to the hospitals and that kind of evidence that kind of, um, I mean, I'm saying this commission of inquiry was able to take those statements and package them in a document. So you're saying that at the time it was um, 
the ideas were really submerged in all of the rest of the information, but it was later when there was more work that was done on it that you could actually see see the detail. But what role do you think your reporting played in that? My reporting was very instrumental in the sense that First of all, the aim was more of that reporting was to give voice and visibility, most importantly, to sexual and gender-based crime and show Kenyans and the world that sexual and gender-based violence happened in the midst or in the madness of the post-election violence. So the role, first of all, was to, to bring these stories to light and show people that there are other categories of survivors other than the internally displaced person, persons or people who have been through other violations that sexual, hey, sexual violence also took place. So I can say that the kind of documentation that we carved out was very, very important. It was seminal work because we were able to show and write compelling stories of women and male survivors who suffered this violence, the sexual violence. What kind of stories most stood out to you? Wow, that's difficult to answer. I think every story was unique. And every story was heart-wrenching because of the manner, the brutal manner in which these violations were happening. We had, or I had, very difficult stories that were very difficult for even the survivors to articulate to me. One story that really, really stood out for me and that is still lingers in my head is of a woman I talked to who suffered partial shock as a result of gang rape, she got stroke, and I had to ask from the medical doctors the relationship between rape and 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 shock and stroke. This was a woman who was a bad in business woman who was selling fish and going about her light businesses as usual. But then here comes the post-election violence. She is gang raped by five men. She contracts HIV and AIDS. Her daughter is gang raped in the process. Her husband blames her for the act because again men were not able to grasp that to understand that you could have protected yourself or where was i to protect you so this is a woman whose life has been shattered just in the blink of an eye that story really stood out for me because when i was talking to her she was on the verge of committing suicide she was like everyone has turned a blind eye including you journalists but the fact that you hear and you're listening to me. These stories, I decided to do them, to give these stories a lot of time. I stayed with her for three days, and it's the third day that she opened up. She saw my patience, and I told her, I'm ready for you, I'm not in a hurry. I'll, I'll stick here until a time when you're able to tell me exactly what happened to you. And she told me I'm scatting around issues because probably if I tell you I got stroke out of this, you would not believe it. But I can take you to my doctor who's been treating me for these other things that came out as a result of rape. Look at me now. I have stroke. I lost a daughter. I have HIV. My husband later died, abandoned me, then later committed suicide because he couldn't take it. So that story really stood out for me that how one's life, how rape and sexual violence rots people's lives forever. Also, I remember some stories that I've seen in different forms that you've done. You've done them for different outlets. Sometimes they've been turned also into graphic novels as well um, on male um, survivors of sexual violence. And 
those stories really surprised me. I didn't even know how to, how or where to start. I remember that time I was working for Journalists for Justice. And Journalists for Justice is, uh, is an online portal that um, specializes on um, stories to do with international criminal justice, but also has a section on victims' voices, and we're talking of victims of atrocity crimes, including sexual violence. And when I pitched these stories to the editor, I remember we were debating and asking ourselves, would they be able to talk to you? We were just like, let's try. I know there's this whole perception of men do not talk or men do not disclose. So they were able to disclose. Those were very, very difficult stories. We're looking at male sexual violence that was largely, largely hidden from the discourse of the crimes, the sexual crimes. I particularly focused on penile amputation, forced circumcision of men, the castration, the amputation, the mutilation, like the genital organs were completely cut off. So those were difficult, difficult. First of all, they shook me, you asked me. Those stories shook me to the core that humanity can get brutal, can get to this level where just because you're not comfortable with someone's tribe, you decide to show him exactly that by attacking that thing that defines his identity as a man, his masculinity. Because as you know, the violence, the post-election violence was pretty much ethnic. It took ethnic overtures. Well, I think we're coming also to the heart of this discussion about what sexual violence really is. It's, it's not just about sex, is it? Absolutely. It's not just about sex. And it's about? It's about power. It's about humiliation. It's about hate. It's about showing people that they, it's about identity, it's about showing people that they are less of human beings than others. It's about control, it's about savage, it's about everything bad. It's remove the sex out of it. It has nothing to do with sexual gratification. Because sometimes when you, talk, when you think about, when you look at the term sexual violence, the first thing that will come to mind is sex. Like people are having sex. It's a violence that is happening at that time. But you know, when you look at the forced circumcision of men, that has nothing to do with one person then raping the other. But it's one person attacking the sexual organ of another person to prove a point. And in this case, they were proving a point that you are not men. It was a violence that was pitting one tribe against the other, one tribe that was circumcised and the other tribe that was not. So the perpetrator's intention at that time, looking in the, at the context of the forced circumcision of men as part of sexual violence, was to show them that we're going to make you men because you're less of men. You cannot lead us, you cannot be president in this country, yet you're not circumcised. But then also, it was coded in so many narratives, including there's this issue of power showing you that you're less of men, so we're making men of you. But then we're also going to show you what it means to be men and not to be men. They had to attack the very thing that defines me as a man. They could have cut my hand, they could have cut my neck, but then the sexual nature of that is they had to attack my penis, which is sexual, it's a sexual organ, yeah? So that also makes it sexual violence. We're talking about things that happened um, quite a long time ago now. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking now in 2019. 
What's happened in terms of a justice process for any of the people that, that you interviewed, um, told the stories of? Justice remains an unfinished business in the country and outside when you're talking of, first of all, the local justice and the international justice. Locally, in 2014, a group of organizations, it's actually a consortium of NGOs came together to, they banded up with survivors of sexual violence, eight of them, to initiate a, a court process at the Kenyan High Court on sexual and gender-based violence, which started off so well. The momentum around that case was very high. This was a civil case. It was not, it was not a criminal case. We thought that by at least by 2015, the case would have been over. I cannot say nothing has happened, but in terms of what survivors and who, those who testified and those who it happened to and those who are following the case, they feel like there's a stalemate, there's a limbo, there was a change of guard, the presiding judges. The, the, the momentum that was created by that case is no longer there. There's a victim and survivor's fatigue. We don't know where we are at, where the case stands right now, but the last I checked, to make the final submissions, but then it looks like nobody's talking about it right now. Nobody's talking about sort of reviving the conversation around that because it garnered a lot of support that time. I think this is interesting as well from a journalist's point of view. Mm. How do you see the connection in that sense between a court case and the way that we as journalists cover a court case? Because I, I hear criticisms from people say, you know, journalists are only interested in the start and the end of processes. I, at least, I'm interested in continuing to create conversation mm -hmm. around things. But it's tough, isn't it, when there's nothing actually happening? It's actually tough. Oh, first of all, I should let you know that I followed through that court case every hearing. So I just didn't want to, to focus on the start and the end. I followed through the entire process and I kept following survivors and victims and include um though i mean uh, in their homes and just asking them their conception of justice in the realm of the court case that is happening what they want to see come out of this process if it's actually ever coming if it's it will if it will ever come to an end and most of them are like we are not aiming to have anyone put in jail what we're seeking is a recognition and acknowledgement that these things happened and it happened to us. If the state can acknowledge that, that will be a first point of healing. That will be a recourse for us. Of course, there are issues of reparations, but when you talk to them now, because I still encounter and interact with a lot of uh, survivors, even if not all of them were able to testify in court, they're like, continue telling these stories, continue creating the momentum around these stories. If we don't talk about it or if we stop the conversation now, because some things need to be pushed, I think the state needs to see that we've not forgotten. They could have forgotten about us, but we have not forgotten. So continue this conversation. Be calling us whenever you have, um, even when you have uh, media meetings or NGOs meetings surrounding justice for survivors of sexual violence, Make sure that you're calling us so that we're able to enhance the conversation because it's not a dead end yet. But I can tell you for a fact that there is a fatigue and it's palpable. Sometimes as a journalist, you don't, broaching this subject is quite hard 
because you know they're re, re traumatizing the revictimization is a survivor will ask you and so what you've asked me so many times you've interviewed me so many so what ex and my situation has not changed what exactly what new do you want to hear from me nothing has changed in my life even looking ahead to the elections in the future and i hear some concerns about what may happen but i still don't see any discussion I uh, don't hear any discussion. I can't, can't find anybody who's concerned about justice for the past. People sort of moved on and said, in the end, we, st we need to move on as a country. The reason why that conversation is not there, at least uh, to, in my own view, is that people have tended to talk about reconciliation. People are looking more into reconciliation than, than drawing to the past. And they're like, now we've moved on, now we have healed, healed in quotes as a country. So there are other things to, to do, there are other things to look forward to. Our leaders shook hands and that signaled reconciliation because those are leaders from those two rival communities who actually, the, the conflict pitted, pitted those two communities. So I think sometimes, I mean, we are in 2019 now, and just recently, in the just recent elections, we had the same sort of violence, not in the same magnitude. I mean, not without like generalizing or just talking on behalf of every Kenyan. We have a tendency of forgetting too fast and too quickly. Because now sometimes when you hear about the conversations, we have another elections coming in 2022, and I can tell you there is a sense of fear. People fear that what has happened in the past could repeat itself. We haven't been able to solve anything. Like I said, justice is an unfinished business. If we don't deal with what happened, it's a ticking time bomb. As part of the podcast, we always ask three different questions. Mm -hmm. The first one is, is there anything I should have asked you that, that you never normally get asked? I think we should have asked me what keeps me going, what keeps me going, like... Okay, JJ, what keeps you going? First of all, what keeps me going and what drives me in this discourse is uh, I derive a lot of strength from survivors themselves, the survivors that I talk to. When I see and hear and look at the kind of courage and fortitude and the tenacity they have and what they've gone through, that gives me a lot of hope and inspiration that if they can embrace that amidst all they've gone through, it just gives hope that uh, it's not all gloom. It's not all gloom. Um, what is it that um, people who don't know a lot about this area that you work on, this uh, coverage of sexual and gender-based crimes, what do they always get wrong? Oh, there's a lot of misconception about rape and sexual violence. The first misconception is, and just allow me to be biased on the male sexual violence, it's like men can never get raped. Men are not raped. Men can never be victims of sexual violence. So that's one thing that people always get wrong. There's that perception and misconception and it needs to be shattered because it's, it's, it's a disservice to people who've suffered these kind of harms. Um, another thing that people get wrong is that um, people have this perception that somebody who's been raped or sexually violated is a dead person and can never rise again. There's no hope. So there's that kind of perception and sometimes when you're writing these stories, people are like, oh, you're writing again about sexual violence? What exactly are you writing up? What, what new thing are you going to bring on the table when we know that uh, this person was raped or gang raped, got HIV, got in, uh, impregnated? 
like is there any hope for that for such kind of a person so sometimes i see you know that kind of narrative being spewed around survivors of sexual violence that it's the end of them yet it's not and is there something that you've read recently or seen recently that you'd like to recommend to people yeah i've, I've come I've, i've read a lot of i can say reports surrounding you know this whole thing of sexual violence in conflict but there are several films in fact two particular films that I've watched film documentaries that changed my perception as well and that if many people watch it would spark a different conversation around sexual violence there is one by a friend of mine Michelle Mitchell the uncondemned probably is not uh it hasn't been shown everywhere but that is a very profound film documentary on the trial a trial that took place in the international criminal tribunal for rwanda that had three rwandan women testifying on rape the film in is hinged on on the prosecution of rape as a as genocide and as a war crime and the most for me was stood out for me is the fact that three women were able to testify against all odds first of all those crimes are not even recognized by the judges until one female judge at the time said they needed to re- the prosecution they, they needed to review their the charge sheet and were it not for these three women testifying against all odds against so many difficulties that crime would not have been recognized so for me that is it is a film and documentary that should be shown all over the world because it just changes the perception around sexual violence and that it can be prosecuted there is another one I watched recently it's a documentary uh produced by the refugee law project is um an organization that supports supports uh refugee and uh, migrants from uh, refugee communities in in Uganda from the DRC in South Sudan it's called gender against men the documentary is powerful because it just deconstructs the binaries that we hold about gender about who gets raped who doesn't what sexual violence means what it doesn't it is a very very powerful documentary that shows that men can be raped and are raped and they should be recognized as victims of rape so that particular one i think i can recommend to everyone concerned about issues of justice for all gender i mean issues for justice for sexual violence for all gender all gender talking of women and men in particular so thanks very much for your time jj thank you for having me janet This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.